I'm Natasha, and I'm Red. And together we are Syllogism, a science, culture, and philosophy challenge podcast on the edge of chaos. This week's challenge was to read two essays by the American poet Ralph Waldo Emerson. Today we're discussing his essay on friendship. Check out last week's discussion on self-reliance for more by Emerson. Enjoy! ago (laughs) we were talking about self-reliance and emerson is a fucking genius is all i have to say but in this particular essay he he speaks on how we can be self-reliant within friendship i think is is the kind of gist because both of us i mean when i read this a long time ago i was like how the hell can you be self-reliant and and still focus on friendship it's it seems incompatible but he does a really good job of telling us how important friendship is for the self he does and um what i what i didn't expect was to see the consistency uh in his thinking between these essays because it seems to me that the thread is something like as we become more self-reliant and more manifestly uh, ourselves and therefore uh, a manifestation of the divine, it gives us a kind of communion with God uh, that is a prerequisite for friendship because another authentic person will have that same communion. And so now it's almost like you're, 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 it's like the divine is communing, communing with itself uh, through an, another person. There's this resonance and uh, belongingness and amplification that happens in a truly connected friend who is also authentic and self-reliant. It's like a puzzle piece. Like you're, you are a p- part of a puzzle and, and so am I. And unless we are our authentic shape, we will never fit together to see the greater thing that is God or the divine. Right. There was there was a, a point at which he was talking about how um, very often when we meet others, we're meeting them by uh, by conventions. And so uh, I, I have this uh, this quote. This is my quote number quote number two in the list. Uh, it's in his letter to a friend, and he's trying to describe what it means uh, to to be a true friend, and he talks, he, he says, we see our friends not sacredly, but with an adulterate passion, which would appropriate him to ourselves. In vain, we are armed all over with subtle antagonisms, which, as soon as we meet again, begin to play and translate all poetry into stale prose. This idea of being in a good friend to someone uh, is such that you allow them to just be themselves and you don't, you don't covet them in a way that constrains them and confines them, again, to conform to an idea of them. They bring their authenticity to you and that's all they need to do. And in so doing, it allows you to also be uh, authentic. And so that's where I think uh, we see a couple things, but it's trust and sincerity. And, and, and those two work together uh, to make what is a, a, a truly open, 
uh, self-reinforcing uh, relationship that is uh, the definition of friendship. It's really profound. He says something uh, that I loved and it reinforces my argument with you uh, about in our tribes episode, which has not yet been released, but our there's, the there's argument that would reinforce any argument. <laughs> <laughs> At least not on your behalf. It's all it all leans my way. Just say. No, man. I like how we we will always have a fucking argument. But, so you said in uh, this episode, which is not yet to be released, that in a digital space, we we're missing something. We're missing this element of knowing each other and. Emerson basically calls bullshit. So let me find it because oh, he's saying- I can't wait for this because I'm a half a snack back. <laughs> so he says, let us buy our entrance to this guild by a long probation. Not, not a long probe, but a long probation. Uh, I, I think one requires the other. Or one, <laughs> or one is in the other. <laughs> the probe is You're desecrating my quote. Yes. <laughs> I desecrated it. I did it myself. Why should we desecrate noble and beautiful souls by intruding on them? Why insist on rash personal relations with your friend? Why go to his house or know his mother and brother or sisters? Why be visited by him at your own? Are these things material to our covenant? Leave this touching and clawing. Let him be to me a spirit, a message, a thought, a sincerity, a glance from him. I want, but not news nor pottage. I can get politics and chat and neighborly conveniences from cheaper companions. Should not the society of my friend be to me poetic, pure, and universal, and as great as nature to itself? Ought I feel that our tie is profane in comparison with yonder bar of clouds that sleeps on the horizon or that clump of waving grass that divides the brook? So he's saying we don't need a physical, tangible, like this fucking bullshit. And I think of my dad when I think of this, because my dad said, like, don't don't ask me how I'm doing. Don't like don't don't do this small talk like this is petty. I don't want to hear Oh, I don't want to tell you about it. I stubbed my toe. Like, I don't want this profane version of a relationship. Give me depth or give me nothing. So I don't need to know what your house looks like. I don't need to know all these details about you. In fact, it's probably better that I don't. Because this leads to the second quote about strangers, which, which is the original quote that drew me to Emerson. I don't know where I found, I was reading something and I saw that Emerson talked about how much he loved strangers. And when I was traveling, it was all strangers, strangers all day, every day. And I would go, I would sit in a, in a hotel bar or an airport bar and people were like, don't you get bored with small talk? And I'm like, no, because I don't make small talk. If you sit next to me at a bar, good fucking luck. Because <laughs> we ain't talking about anything trivial. I'm going in for the fucking kill or you will not have a conversation with me. So okay. he says about strangers, I'll just continue into this quote because it seems to make sense. But as soon as the stranger begins to intrude his partialities, his bullshit, his definitions, his defects into the conversation, it is all over. He has heard the first, the last, and the best he will ever hear from us. He is no stranger now. Vulgarity, ignorance, misapprehension are old acquaintances. Now, when he comes, he may get the order, the dress, the dinner, but the throbbing of the heart, the communications of the soul, no more. It's like hmm. once your old hat, the, the fucking magic's gone. Hmm. 
Hmm. Okay. So I have issues with, I, I, I have issues. <laughs> um, so clearly Emerson. All. Yeah. Yeah. So all right, let's fight. You fight Emerson. <laughs> I just agree with him. <laughs> well, if you agree by proxy, <laughs> he's saying something that's important and, and I, I, he's talking about knowing the essence versus, uh, versus the particular. This is something that I think that you don't necessarily get uh, in, in digital space. Uh, you get particulars, not essentials. And, and, and let me, well, girl, let me tell you something right now. I got, I, I, I have, I, I'm going to expand on this a little bit so that you'll know that I think that there are gradations of connectedness that you can have through digital space that ultimately have to lead to something like the ability to coexist in a silence such that you and I know that we resonate so purely that uh, there's no discontinuity between us, between us, and I don't have to utter a word. It's like being in a car with someone and driving along and you're sharing an experience, but no one is talking and you're comfortable in that silence. And so what I see in digitally mediated space is that um, you talk and you talk and you talk and you present, you're always putting something on display to some degree. And it's really only in the real world that you can feel the presence of another such that that resonance can happen even in quietude. And, it's, and that is where you feel the bond that is beyond uh, you know, what we are able to have uh, in this space. So like if you and I just sat here in silence, we could do that. And I think you and I would be okay with it. But in most instances, most of these communications will be something like, if I'm not directly saying or putting on a show, if I'm not entertaining you and doing something like making the table and cleaning everything up, you and I aren't relating at all. But he's saying that that is not what we need. He's saying how we need to be isolated and then come back to being friends. It's a part of the whole. So we don't need to be together to be friends. We don't need, what you're talking about is like this, I don't know what you're looking for, but I know, I know what you're saying. It's a companion. That's a companion. Mm, well, no, I would almost say that, uh, and, and so there are, there are layers between friends and companion, and that's a really important uh, distinction. So um, a companion will require that you are being performative. I am with you because we like the same show, let's say, or something like that. A friend, again, is there where there's no need to perform. I know that my time with you, whether I'm with you physically or not, there's something essential about you that keeps us connected. And it is beyond performance. It is nonverbal. It's not, there's no necessary mediated communication that I keeps disagree. us together. I disagree wholeheartedly. A companion well, is just someone who is with you. Not, there is no performance with a companion. Your companion is just your co-panion. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting into semantics and the definition of a friend but i no. i don't know how many of these friends i've ever really had um i may i can think of a few but the thing about a friend is it's a temporary state of being it's not a permanent uh static thing it's a very dynamic state 
And you may be friendly in one moment and not in the next because it goes against your nature entirely. Like to be an individual, we have to be separate individuals. And a friendship is when that, when those two individuals come together and work. And it can only happen for a certain for a certain period of time until those two people have to be apart and have to be individuals again. Hmm. So I'm not sure that I read it this way. I I think you know there's um, there's a point at which he's talking about how whether we're together or apart, it 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 doesn't really matter. There's like there's this there's this eternal quality to it where nothing dissolves it. There's no actual division between us. It really is. He's making no distinction between uh, friendship and love. So so I would say that in those ways they are synonymous. Um, and, and you could then differentiate the the different strata of types of 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 love, but it certainly is that friendship is love. Um, but it becomes a kind of timelessness, and that means the friend is never really away from you, and and therefore your your isolation your is never a withdrawal from actual friendship. It's like the friend is always with you, and there's so much a part of you that no matter what, there's this. There's this harmony across time and space uh, that makes none of those things matter anymore. I, I, I agree with you. And I think that's why it doesn't matter that we are in physical proximity. This is why this supports my meat space argument that we don't have to be in physical meat space. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, we don't have to be there, but I think that, I think- You you on the fucking ropes, dude. You ain't <laughs> <You're> all right. <laughs> Concede. Um, well, I, 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 I have lots of conceits about this, but uh, <laughs> um, I still uh, would, would maintain that it's not that it's impossible, perhaps. Let's just let's say this. It's not impossible to achieve something like that in digital space. But I think that it requires more time and more exploration to know that you're able to dissolve your boundaries and be authentic. Okay. Well, then let me, let me bring the like last quote that supports my argument into play because I I didn't know, I didn't know we were going to be fighting. I would have, uh, I I didn't mean to be fighting, but it's like, sometimes I can't help it. Um, he does say, uh, you know, let us be silent so we may hear the whisper of God's. Let us not interfere. You shall not come nearer a man by getting into his house. He said it. He said it. So you, you want to fight with Emerson about this. You want to fight with him about the idea that there is a true self. You, you want to, you don't, you don't love Emerson. <laughs> I love Emerson. That's okay. Well, no. So I am, I'm just a nonconformist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he can he can propose these ideas, and I am uh, free to uh, you know juggle with them and uh, you know play uh, uh, you know, play yourself. I, I can I, I can play myself, and I can I can I can be self Socratic. <laughs> don't 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 tell anybody else on the internet. And we're talking about true friendship, right? So we're talking about something that is very magical and it's not going to happen with everyone. But one of the things he says is that it has to be one-on-one. Friendship has to be one-on-one. Did you read this part? Yes, I did. 
So I read the whole damn thing. Of course. You <laughs> so I like this because it reminds me of our little friend group. So he says, friendship may be said to require nature so rare and costly, each so well-tempered and so happily adapted. And so with all circumstance, for even in that particular, a poet says, love demands that the parties be altogether paired. So, and then he says, you know, we have to be a pair, but I am not quite so strict on my terms, perhaps because I have never known so high a fellowship as others. I please my imagination more with a circle of godlike men and women variously related to each other and between whom subsists a lofty intelligence. I think that's like, <laughs> that's how I feel about our book club. But so it doesn't matter so much that, that there are people around you that are not truly themselves or that their friendship is not true because being your true self supersedes all of that. Mm, oh, okay. But then what that means though, is that you are receptive to being able to be a true friend to someone because you are, you know, a, you are individual and self-reliant and connected to uh, the, the transcendent oneness that is God. But I would counter that uh, no one who is not can be your friend. To the degree that someone is conformist and there's some uh, superfice that uh, they have to put on, to the degree that they are not authentic uh, and mean that they cannot trust you, uh, and because they don't trust you, they are not tender with you or themselves, they cannot be friends. And so you're open and receptive to it. But if you don't meet another in exactly that way, there is no friendship. Yeah, at least not with the other person that no. you have a friendship perhaps with God and the one let's say something of that sort but you don't have another soul to whom you're truly connected because there are walls that separate you right so this is the difference between a stranger and when you get to know the stranger so the stranger can morph into a friend or into uh, some other person you know that's going to be in your circle uh, but there's nothing like that not knowing. And, and I think a true friend, there's a lot of not knowing. I think a true friend is someone where they surprise you and you receive that because how can they be themselves inconsistent and full of folly and not surprise you? Right. He says, if I know your sect, I anticipate your argument. Uh, that is pretty much the universal way of saying that, um, you know, you are not really you. You are lame. You represent, you are lame. You represent <laughs> an idea, but you front. You front. The algorithm you, knows you. You're a sued. You are an algorithm. You are a representation of something. You are not the thing in itself. And so far from ideal that you are not worth my friendship. Ooh. I love <laughs> <laughs> such a dig. I feel like that is such a good hard dig. I love it. <laughs> so then we both liked the quote about sincerity because that was, I think, one we both we can actually fucking agree on. There are two elements that go to the composition of friendship, each so sovereign that I can detect no superiority in either, no reason why either should be first named. One is truth. A friend is a person with whom I may be sincere. Before him, I may think aloud. I am arrived at last in the presence of a man so real and equal that I may drop even those undermost garments of dissimulation, courtesy, and second thought, which men never put off 
and may deal with him with the simplicity and wholeness with which one chemical atom meets another. Sincerity is the luxury allowed, like diatoms and authority, only to the highest rank, that being permitted to speak truth is having none above it to court or conform unto. Every man alone is sincere. At the entrance of a second person, hypocrisy begins. Mm, that's, my that's my favorite piece. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that one final statement. Every man alone is sincere. At the entrance of a second person, hypocrisy begins. Yeah. And this leads us back to the idea of, of unity. So in a real friend, uh, there is no second person. There is no hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is uh, impossible in a true friendship. Whether you're in relation to God or you're in relation, in relation to another, uh, hypocrisy is absent. Absent. Because, because it's almost as though you're with yourself. You are sincere. But that's not what he says. He says that at the entrance of a second person, friend or not, hypocrisy begins I didn't, I didn't see him I didn't say I didn't I didn't see in that quote and maybe I didn't uh, transcribe it properly but I did not see anything at all about it being friend or not he's saying at the entrance of a second person hypocrisy begins I would say that what he's really telling us is that hypocrisy is the default in a state of non-friendship that that be, because it, with if to the degree that when you're with a friend, you're with someone who's also uh, being truthful, sincere, and tender, you are erasing uh, this hypocrisy and you're dissolving into uh, into the divine. Which is why you don't need to be proximal to a friend uh, because the friend is with you. You're kind of co-eternal and you're kind of at one with uh, something transcendent. I think that's the goal, but I don't think it exists in nature. It's asymptotic. It's idealistic, aspirational. Well, yes, yes, of course. But it's the edge of chaos, right? So, so the state, the absence of hypocrisy is a consistent state. So it's right. impossible for us to be in that state a hundred percent of the time. But here I think though, is where the tenderness blends into things. So tenderly if you are experiencing some you know vacillation i allow that non-judgmentally that i am not looking to in some way assess or condemn because um the part of me that cares and loves you says that is all a part of you it's part of it's, it's part of the universal you're exploring and being your authentic self that's a gift to me um, and, and I take that sincerity of self-expression as uh, a display of your trust of me. And that in turn increases my, it increases my care. It's almost like these things are oscillating and, and self-reinforcing. Okay. Okay. So that, but that's the other element that he says is required for friendship is truth and tenderness. I can, okay. I can see that argument. Um, so so go ahead and fuck up. It's okay. <laughs> like I said, she who edits the video wins the argument. <laughs> so I like this quote too, as we're on this, it's in the same paragraph. And he's talking about this hypocrisy of the second man. He says, we can seldom go erect, which is great 
great. But that's not true. That happens <laughs> all the time. <laughs> seldom not go erect. <laughs> almost every man we meet requires some civility, requires to be humored. He has some fame, some talent, some whim of religion or philanthropy in his head that he is not to be questioned and which spoils all conversation with him. But a friend is a sane man. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I just I think I just lost every friend. <laughs> Exercise is not my ingenuity, but me. My friend gives me entertainment without requiring any stipulation on my part. A friend, therefore, is a sort of paradox in nature. I who alone am, I who see nothing in nature whose existence I can affirm with equal evidence to my own, behold now the semblance of my being in all its height, variety, and curiosity, reiterated in a foreign form, so that a friend may well be reckoned the masterpiece of nature. It's, I love, I fucking love it. I love it. It's so powerful, I think. It's just... The poetic language like that, that really uh, you know, lights a fire in, in inside of you. And it, it shows you the difference. It's the difference, you know, between analysis and synthesis. As, as exciting as analysis is uh, to uncover things, it's, it's when they're pieced together in some, in a whole like this, and then and then woven together with something like mystical and poetic language that you really feel like even just in reading this that you've you've transcended it's deeply spiritual it is like said. yeah um it's and i think it is so because the idea of being self-reliant the idea of being an individual especially today is so rare and beautiful that when you find another and you can relate to this and you can see it and you're like, wow, I've experienced that. It's just, it is absolutely transcendent because of the rarity of it. It lends itself to solipsism in a way. Uh, it's like the solipsism as part of the whole um, because it's, it's terrifying to think about how rare that is, but it's also beautiful. And there's a kind of freedom within the solipsism that allows you to expand your your sense of self and your awareness. You know, when you think about how everybody is factionalizing presently, you know, whether you're red or blue or whether you're biologically essentialist, something like that, almost none of them, those people can be friends with anyone else who doesn't feel exactly the same way that they do. And they won't even uh, brook even a slight variation in opinion and you can see them dissolving uh even as groups just because there's no permissiveness for any uh any vacillation any imperfection uh in no the tenderness yeah there's no tenderness because you need to replicate the conformity of the thought down to the individual such that those are true uh those are true solipsists but here is a kind of solipsism that transcends the human, I think, aspires to something like, well, it's metaphysical. It transcends the human into something like, like God. And that solipsism is, it's exploratory and open um, and non-confining. And so it's almost like there are two, there are two ways to be solipsistic. Um, is what I think I'm getting at. And so yeah, that's an interesting notion. We talk about so many things on a spectrum. 
Um, I, why couldn't solipsism be that way too? That you can be a solipsist as part of a whole and a solipsist as an atomized nothing, kind of just floating out in space by yourself. And the degree to which you are a, a solipsist within some collective demanding absolute conformity. The, 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 you know, strangely, the paradox of conformity is that those groups will uh, dissolve into true uh, solipsism. And then everyone is themselves an island because no one completely resonates and there's no tolerance and no tenderness for any uh, digressions. Yeah. Oof. So that's not, a, that's not a friend. But it's uncomfortable. It's gross. It's perverse. Yeah. And, and so this is why, I mean, as of late, I've been just spending less and less time reading anything at all online because you're basically getting um, the most dilute and conformist uh, perspectives. And then you're just watching people war with each other and nullifying each other's positions over petty things, whether they are truly just positional or uh, someone, I saw you arguing with someone in some comments somewhere where it was like a semantic uh, detail, which was just, you're, you're, you're arguing with angry infants who are yeah. going to find reason to try to decimate you no matter what and keep you from being uh, an individual and not tolerate the possibility that the perspective they have, which clearly is just derived from someone else. If you use this uh, phrase, whataboutism, clearly you've picked up something from the urban dictionary and you think it's actually a thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that person cannot tolerate any, I guess, discontinuity in the way they perceive the world such that you could say this word really doesn't actually, doesn't actually apply. It's embarrassingly simplistic. It, it, it reduces us all to intellectual ash. Uh, and, and there is no human phoenix that, arrives from, uh, that arises from factionalization. I don't know if I agree with that because I'm an eternal optimist. Um, I like to think that, so if you think about this, with this example of arguing with someone in the comments, first of all, it's the fucking pit of despair. The second it happens, you're just like, no, and you're like quicksand. And then, and then at some point you just have to like, okay, I have to relax. Let me out of this. You have to just let go of that. But you ever pay attention? There are people liking comments back and forth. They're like, oh yeah, winner, winner. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's this new thing when people will write comments, they'll write W or L in these TikTok comments because everything is fucking abbreviated now. So either you won this argument or you lost it. Again, I think this, this calls upon self-reliance. And I do think there is a potential partial human Phoenix from the ash that can arise because what sometimes you are doing in this, if you, as long as you are true to yourself in these arguments or whatever, and you let go when the time calls, you make a comment someone starts bantering and arguing, you recognize that there's no hope and you let go, then people can see what you've done. People, the internet's forever. So they watch you and your behavior in these comments. And so if you're being true to yourself and saying, okay, I'm done now, y'all you, fucking monkeys, even though they're antagonizing, you'd be like, oh, you quit? You walk right away? No, I'm fucking done. Like I said what I had to say, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind making a comment or having right. this kind of thing on display, because no matter what, when you put something out there, it's going to be antagonized or supported or whatever it is, but maintaining solitude in the madness of crowds is the goal. Because Emerson talks about his own bookshelf, how when we read, we're basically not allowing our own thoughts, but then he talks about himself reading. He keeps his books near, but not too near. And so he's saying that 
we have to enter into the hypocrisy at some point. We have to enter into this kind of like perverse, chaotic place. But in that, we are exercising our ability to rely on ourselves each time. It's a challenge. It's like going to the gym. How much can I still maintain who I am in this every time I enter into it? And that's why people, I think, have turned away because they're like, I'm fucking tired. <laughs> I don't want to war well, with you. I, 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 I see what you're saying. And I think there's something to be said, whether you need something like a mentorship uh, exclusively or not, or we're, uh, or we're talking about you know, the Socratic method and so forth when it comes to learning and learning in such a way that it actually manifests uh, the genius and the authenticity within you that no one else is capable of you know, at, at any time because they are not you as an individual. You do need a catalyst for conception. Something is going to precede that great uh, insight. And it can be something that's completely antagonistic to you that uh, has forced you to think about something in an entirely new light. It could be something you even agree with where you just go, you know, win. <laughs> but, yeah. but hopefully really it's actually something that's contrarian, but contrarian in a way that allows for dialogue. And I think the problem that I have is that in reading comments, you're seeing actually the, the, the worst distillation of, of, of human uh, self-expression uh, imaginable. I've had people where I've written something fucking brilliant. Thank you very much, self, um, <laughs> because I'm so self-reliant that one person just grabbed what I wrote and copied it and pay, and shared it back with me just to just to turn the argument back around and be like, no, I, I know you are, but, but, but what am I? I know, really? Really? <laughs> it's, it's to the point where you're seeing the most absurd and infantile uh, impulses of, of people in part because there is no actual friendship. There's no assumption or minimal assumption of goodwill on the behalf of most of the people who are looking to cut you down. Bad faith. Yeah. yeah. So I, I had one uh, interesting exchange with a, a guy who was clearly on the side of, uh, this was earlier in uh, last year, defining what happened on January 6th as uh, an insurrection. We started going down a definitional path because I was like, well, no, this doesn't actually meet all the criteria. And he says, well, you know, you cherry picked this definition, but look here, I found this one. And I said, well, okay, well then go a little further. And if you keep going, you'll see that in case law, here's how it's actually applied. So the language says this, you might even be able to use this word in this context, but as you look at the application, it's the application that tells you what the word really means and why it is that it's misapplied. And then he stopped and he stopped nicely, but it was a good exchange because we got to a point where we could talk about definitions and we taught each other things that we didn't know beforehand. But that's a rare example of people on two sides of things where we were both being honest and intellectual about it, a little bit antagonistic, but also teaching one another. That is rare. Absolutely. With this being said, what you're talking about, this like rare exchange in the comments, I think this is the ideal. This is the aspiration that we all have. And I think the way this is attainable is through community, is through a digital community, because I really enjoy my Instagram community. I think there's a lot of people there that have very differing beliefs and they're not afraid to say it. And the people that stick around are open enough and give enough 
grace to each other to say it. And then sometimes they'll call each other retards in the comments or whatever. And I have to go in and I'll just be like, come on, you're both retards. But there is something to say about having a rapport in a community online that gives us a broader exposure to other ideas and other opinions when we feel us a little bit of safety and security within that community. We're like, okay, I know I know this person who is hosting this community and they are not going to let me get annihilated by another person unless I deserve it. There are some, t- some instances where I'm like, shut the fuck up. You need to just go to time out. But I think you and I talked about this in this web three context of kind of where things are going in this creator centric digital world now is in community. And I do think within the safety of community, there's a lot of individuation to be had. If we are all part of this community where we all feel comfortable and safe, and the number one requirement is maybe openness, for example, then we can all participate in that without fear of this descent into madness or chaos or, you know, lazy thinking or whatever it is that we know someone's going to be like, okay, stop, you know, you be quiet. You sit the fuck down. You're not getting the mic anymore. Well, I think that requires that someone is acknowledged as a a kind of uh, authority in some kind of hierarchy. And the tendency online, unfortunately, is that everyone thinks that they are uh, omniscient and omnipotent and what they say goes. And their respect for something like a moderator, I think, uh, has gotten to the point where it's not that it doesn't exist, uh, but uh, in so few does it exist properly that it's really hard to moderate well. And so you have a community, but it's... its porosity can lead you to a, a point where you're going to have to do nothing but moderate and maybe now, you know, your whole ecosystem uh, devolves by it, it, because there's an invasive species of garbage that is destroying things. And all you're doing is pruning weeds and uh, applying insecticide or something of that sort. So, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. But also the thing is, is if, if we're, if we're tending our garden, so to speak, let's say this community that we're building, like with our little book club or whatever, if we're properly tending our garden, part of that is pruning and and maintaining and co-creating space where we can all get our nutrition. Yeah, someone in these communities, there are jobs, there are roles within communities. If we like the space we're in, you're gonna go get the hose. I'm gonna go till the dirt. They're pruning the weeds this week. And we all kind of- As as a pimp, I'm always getting the hose. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't even realize I said that. I meant like the watering hose. Not go get the hose, but the getter of hose. You're such a wannabe pimp. You're like you play a pimp on TV. I, I do play a pimp on TV. I'm you're you're all talk. You're all barking, no bite, no backbiting, no backbiting. I'm not, I'm not in prison. Just saying. So. <laughs> prison has been on my mind lately because I fear one day I will end up in a gulag. I think so. Well, um, we're already in gulags to the degree that we're conformist. So uh, this is something we might want to consider because you're talking about prison. And this isn't the first time that you've mentioned your 
fascination with prison sex. I mean, I mean, prisons generally. There's, there's a book uh, that I came across. It's called The Devil You Know, Stories of Human Cruelty and Compassion. And this is really all about people with uh, extraordinarily disturbing uh, psychological disorders that lead them to commit heinous acts and uh, lead them into prison. So it would be interesting to explore some of the psychology that uh, brings people to be so self-reliant, perhaps, but yet still not connected to a spirit, perhaps, uh, that they are so deviant that they need to be taken away from from society. People who are going to be self-reliant and who are going to be non-conformist to begin with, there's something about the idea of transgression. you are going to be by definition transgressive. And there's something about being able to do that, um, whether you're reading a transgressive fiction, like the kinds of things and you see like Chuck uh, Palahniuk would do, um, or if you read a, a really good short story, let's say by like Clive Barker, where the things that he's doing with ideas are just way outside of what would be considered a normal fare. There's a fascination with that that draws people who are uh, non-conformist. Like Emerson said, people are drawn to people who are self-reliant. They want to see that. And you have to do that because they want to see that it's going to be okay. The whole ordinary men are great and great men are ordinary. People want to see what it looks like to be self-reliant. They're looking at what can go wrong. I could go outside the norm, but what will happen? There's something to be said about dark fantasy. You know who's not a conformist? It's going to be the person who does something extraordinarily outside of the norm. It's going to be Ted Kaczynski. It's people with a lack of courage to do these things. Or what is it that makes that happen? It's it's a curiosity. How do you get to that point? I don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think I have it in a mechanical sense. I don't want to know exactly all the details of the perversity, like what you did and all that stuff. I don't like the gory stuff. I want to understand the essence of those people. Ted Kaczynski is interesting to me because I want to know how am I like him? I mean, we have some similarities, Kaczynski and I, I would love to go live in Montana in a cabin uh, by myself. I think I could, if I were a man, I might've already done it. Theodora Gangly. uh... (laughs) (laughs) It's curious, but it's almost the opposite of friendship. It's us looking at perversions of nature and we're kind of like, how did they get there? And why didn't they go down the good path, the righteous path? It's not exactly autism, but there's some element of non-sociality. The bad solipsism. When you see narcissism and Machiavellianism, sadism, I think so. I would even go as like this dark tetrad maybe, because I I, I forget what they all are. So sadism, Machiavellianism, narcissism. And and, okay, and psychopathy, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's your tetrad. And so to what degree are those people so manifestly strong in those things that they completely dehumanize everyone else and even loathe what people are. Like they're, they're, they're going over an edge where we have these traits and some of them are necessary for survival. If you're not at least somewhat narcissistic, you're probably going to die. You, like, yeah. you need to have these things. Extremes wind up resulting in uh, a kind of pathology. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're talking about the traits that are required for friendship. And we're saying to an extent to have true friendship, you have to be somewhat of a solipsist, somewhat of a, an outsider. But what happens when you go 
to the extreme outside. I think we're all curious about that because we all look to ourselves for pathology. We're like, okay, I'm fucked up, but how fucked up? (laughs) But also, he also says, uh, I am equally balked by antagonism and by compliance. Let him not cease in an instant to be himself. The only joy I have in his being mine is that the not mine is mine. I hate where I looked for a manly furtherance or at least manly resistance to find a mush of concession. Better be a nettle in the side of your friend than his echo. We want to be friends. We want to be tender, but like we also want to fight. <laughs> the difference between hoes and bros. So, <laughs> so, so um, you know, as a, as a dude, um, you'll you'll see this uh, quite a bit. Men will know what I what I mean. No one who identifies as something other than male or female will have any clue, and only real men will resonate. And that is that men will fight and hate each other in the moment when they see some, when they, uh, there's some antagonism that results in a, a, a conflict and a cataclysm that then resolves into a deeper friendship. There's something about antagonism within a friendship that is a display of love that can actually help the friendship to grow. My fight with you betters me and strengthens me. And I will find that in your resolve and your conviction, whether I win or lose, my respect for you grows and my friendship can deepen. And you won't see that too many other places because even a minor contradiction in other spaces will result in the kind of atomization and solipsism that uh, causes friendship to dissolve. And this is why I am friends more with men than women. And I think these kind of women get the, get a bad rap now. Oh, you're the cool girl. Like I like anal and I like to fight. Like, like no, like, oh, well, wait a second. So yes. <laughs> no, you've seen this like cool girl. I send this, so I'm going to send you my, uh, send you my, my physical address. Send those women to my house. Oh, so, <laughs> <laughs> No, but there's this like, uh, I'm one of these women who I like to fight. I want to sharpen my sword. Uh, it's not that I like to fight. It's that it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's this subtle antagonism that I look for. And I have found in a lot of female relationships, women get fucking pissed. They're like, why are you being such a bitch? I must have this very male quality where I want to poke the bear. I want to prod. I want some kind of jousting. So I don't know, is that feminine quality of friendship something exclusionary? Like leads, uh, this is what Emerson's talking about, a male thing. Can, can females hope to have the same types of relationships? Or is there some like warm sisterhood that I'm not part of? <laughs> uh, I don't necessarily know. <laughs> Women, I think, okay, so he said there's no order to the requirement for friendship. It's truth and tenderness. But I disagree. I think in female relationships, tenderness before truth would be the hierarchy. I think women require that you first hear them, that you almost give up a little bit of your self-reliance to be a part of the partnership. It's like a sacrificial kind of offering to another woman to be like, I tone down who I am in your presence. So I think it it almost goes against this divine type of friendship that Emerson Mm -hmm. is talking about. I, I, I listening to it in that way, it sounds like uh, it, it, it does. Because you're making these concessions, you are approaching with 
inauthenticity. And you are only going to be tender with the fall version of someone who is presenting you with a, uh, a facade. I mean, that, that's what it sounds like to me. But maybe some, this is what this goes back to what we've talked about, about individuals. Maybe some people are more tender than others. And so it comes to them to be naturally tender over truthful. And so would that not then be self-reliance in and of itself? If it is more my true self to be tender and put others before myself, than to be truthful. Hmm. I tend to extend understanding very greatly to others and allow them to do all kinds of things idiosyncratically that I don't expect necessarily for them to do uh, for me. And that creates a bit of a barrier uh, between me and, uh, and the other group that both presupposes that I can't necessarily be fully trusting, but it also seems to reinforce that. And, and so I've had plenty of friendships where if you disagree with something, and it's especially people who tend to fall on some kind of identitarian spectrum, they're, you're, you're friends with them, you want to be uh, uh, open and understanding, and you give them all kinds of latitude for their idiosyncrasies, but they identify so strongly with their belief structures that you can't get behind that to the true person. And so I'm open, I'm open, but the people I'm with aren't necessarily able to be open to me or to be true friends. And if I commit even a single gaffe in, in the name of humor, in all likelihood, there will be a rift between us that becomes palpable. So openness is a requirement for this true friendship. O openness and courage. And I, I, even, I even say something, this is going to be interesting. Uh, you know, our test for the group on the Discord for disgust. disgust. Oh, I think there's an o openness and, and disgust have to be wide enough that they allow you to experience a range of things as both possible and acceptable and to not judge them harshly. A gape, if you will. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm in my Jimmy Fallon moment. Like, let me take notes. Um, <laughs> even though I caused I, oh, I started this. I was, I did. I was um, more. So, so what you're speaking about then, and we're talking about, you know, can women have this true friendship? And I think they can, obviously. Maybe there's more of a propensity in men to have Emerson-style friendship. When we're talking about unequal friendships and like what you're talking about in your friend groups where they're not open and, you know, you've committed an egregious error by being yourself. He says he struggles with this idea of one-sided friendship. So as to one-sided friendship, he says, let your greatness educate the crude and, and cold companion. If he is unequal, he will presently pass away, but thou art enlarged by thine own shining and no longer a mate for frogs and worms. Dost soar and burn with the gods of the Empyrean. It is thought a disgrace to love unrequited, but the great will see that true love cannot be unrequited. True love transcends the unworthy object and dwells and broods on the eternal. When the poor interposed mass crumbles, it is not sad, but feels rid of so much earth and feels its independency the surer. And so he's saying, it doesn't matter if you have a friend that is true or not true. All that matters is that you're yourself. One of the dearest friends I've made in my life, and I say she's dear because she's been so open and honest with me. When someone is that vulnerable and honest with you, they're immediately dear friends. She was going through a difficult time, a uh, divorce and whatnot. And I was questioning and inquisitive, you know, trying to understand and learn and, and learn about her, but also I was curious and comparing my own situation. And 
she said to me on a number of occasions, I feel like you're questioning me. And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't mean for it to be like that. It was an affront to her. Another time we were poking and prodding and laughing and kind of joking. And I I think I struck a nerve because we were talking about the show where it's like, will you push someone off a building or not? You know, are you that one who would not conformist like the Anch conformity experiment? Are you the, are you going to conform or not? And she was like, well, I wouldn't, I would never do that. And we're like, that's the point. Everyone thinks they're not that person. And so later she said to me, you make me feel stupid. And I was like, I am sorry. I don't mean to. She's like, I feel like you're poking fun at me or you're making fun of me. And I genuinely did not mean for that to be what happened. But the fact that she told me this solidified her place in my mind as my friend. So to me, that is it's not unrequited love. I still love them, even though they may not love me in the same way or as much, but it's eternal. The, the trueness of it. Okay. I see that to a degree. And, and, and here's where I, I would maybe insert some pivot. And, and that is agreeableness as a personality trait is a kind of double-edged sword. Naturally, people who are uh, abusive will tend to gravitate to you because they need someone who's going to accept their garbage uh, unequivocally. So you have to be really careful that you don't attract pathology by being too agreeable. In order to be self-reliant, you need to have a, a reasonably high level of disagreeability. I struggle in that I'm perfectly willing to be absolutely like ravenously disagreeable uh, intellectually, but in relationship, I tend to find myself going, okay, what can I do here versus, versus what will be unacceptable? I find that predominantly in relationships where the persona of the people uh, or, the, or the person is more feminine. I'm pretty disagreeable. And so when she said that, I was like, uh, sorry. I can't not be, first of all, my intention was not what you, what impacted you. uh, I can't not be who I am. We left it at that. We kind of went our separate ways amicably. And actually she texted me the other day. She's like, I heard the podcast. It's amazing. We're friends eternally just because of the spirit of it. But if I was a little bit more agreeable or vulnerable to attack or vulnerable to conformity, I would be like, okay, I won't, I'll try, I'll try my best not to agitate that part of you. In that moment, I was not that way because I had just went through something with my dad where my dad was saying, I need you to just be a little bit more feminine. And I was like, Hey, you know what? Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) And if I'm going to say fuck you to my biological father, I I don't have any space to make concessions for a friend. Right. Yeah. Well, and the thing I think is, so I, and I'm not sure if this will maybe bring it to uh, a, a close, maybe when you are true to yourself and you're able to therefore be a true friend and you find another true friend, there's something about it that is mutually reinforcing. So it is extraordinarily difficult in isolation to be both nonconformist and strong. It's like you need some kind of sense of community There's a, and you get that from this friend. Even when you're alone, you can, you're even more secure in being yourself. So even though you can't be so disagreeable, let's say, that your nonconformity is such that you're going to be uh, on the outside of society doing things uh, you know, a la Ted Kaczynski, um, which means, of course, that you're going to have pressures that you're going to submit to uh, to be somewhat conformist. 
that alliance allows you to be even stronger, I think, in your, in your non-conformity. It's like when you find yourself and you find a real friend, um, the capacity for selfhood becomes, becomes uh, greater. Word. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a beautiful summation. Let's talk about what we're going to do next time. Next episode, if you want to read along, we're going to read uh, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we really didn't have that many dick jokes. So uh, it was no, really I, hard. It was really hard. You might, you might have to slip some in there. Just, uh, <laughs> we were both making dick jokes over each other. It was a beautiful, beautiful compliment. Yeah. <laughs>